Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Scott, my father-in-law, loved your Muppet reference from last week's Ratsack that I definitely did not understand in the moment, but apparently that little song you sang uh, as the name of one of our segments, he caught it. So you made one person among our listeners smile with that. Oh, not only did he catch it, I believe a writer on the Colbert show, uh, Late Show, caught it because they made the exact same joke uh, the day later <laughs> with much more developed lyrics and better graphics, admittedly. But, you know, we're a podcast. Our graphics are what you're here for, guys. Do you think they stole that from you? I did tweet at Steven at home and he did not respond, <laughs> which I was a little bit. Oh, that's by. a real but bummer, that's okay. Scott. I know, Rejected. I know. I was ashamed. It was a shame. But I told him he could have our bits anytime he wants them. So maybe they're secret <laughs> listeners. Who knows? And he said, no, no, thank you. <laughs> we <laughs> don't want he, them. he politely declined and blocked me, but that's All, okay. Also, Scott, please, please stop offering your bits to people on Twitter. It's called freelancing, guys. It's fine. <laughs> Eventually, it pays off money. As far as I can tell. I, as far as I can tell from most of my Hollywood podcasts I listen to, it starts paying sometimes around the time I'm 40. So I got a couple years and then the paychecks just come rolling in. Okay. So, so you're offering people your bits on Twitter for money. This is just getting worse and worse, Scott. Yeah. What can you do? Oh, bits. Now I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Never Say Reason Again, uh, which are my plans when I finish this year of terrible subtitles that I somehow committed myself to doing and refused to abandon. Before, before we get to our one-year anniversary. Regardless, I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with my, your two other co-hosts, my two co-hosts, I should say, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined by one of our favorite repeat guests here on Rational Security, Executive Editor at Lawfare, Natalie Orpit, a.k.a. Natalie Norpit. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, hello. And what a lovely throwback to my first appearance on Rational Security. It was one of the one of my early bizarre efforts and takes on this show, which I'm weirdly proud of, reasons I can't really get into. Uh, but regardless, I'm going to keep bringing it back, so long as people still remember. Scott, the, the problem is that if you're going to do it, you have to fully commit. It has to be with a bad Cockney accent. Natalie, no. Bit. No, please. I don't want to do this again. <laughs> well, we got Alan's now. Now we just have to get your Quintas, and then oh. we'll have the true triumvirate of Cockney, Natalie, Norfolk pronunciations uh, that we've all been wanting for our ringtones this entire time. But regardless, Natalie, I am excited to have you here. We are all excited to have you here for what we are calling the homesick edition because I am homesick because the wave has finally caught up with me. We are finally, me and my household are finally part of the cool kids that now have COVID immunity or will shortly once we get over the COVID itself. Uh, But for that reason, we're recording remotely and I am, my voice may be a little sexier than usual. uh, So apologies for that. But nonetheless, we are here to talk through some of the big stories from national security news for the past week with you including the following three stories. Topic one, first act break. We are one week into the January 6th committee's public hearings. What have we learned that we didn't know already and how effective are they proving to be? Topic two, not since the Sultans of Swing. 
a dire situation is once again brewing over the Straits of Taiwan. Oh, you get what I did there? Oh, you, all, you, you all may be too young for this reference. I think I'm too young for this reference. But regardless, I kind of went for it anyway. Because again, I have a fever. <laughs> Things aren't going super great on my end. But regardless, a dire situation is once again brewing over the Straits of Taiwan. As China and the United States rattled sabers at the regional Shangri-La Dialogue, China rejected the Taiwan Strait status as international waters, a longstanding U.S. position. And the two parties received an unlikely assist in their increasingly adversarial posture from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who sent in a video message calling for the region to defend Taiwan from possible Chinese aggression. Is Ukraine pushing China and the United States closer to a conflict over Taiwan? How should the international community respond? And topic three, a big win for big sisters. Last week, a mentally ill young man aborted plans to murder Brett Kavanaugh and surrendered to police just outside the Supreme Court Justice's home on the advice of his sister. Since then, Congress has gone from near unanimous support for stronger security measures for the Supreme Court to increasingly partisan loggerheads over how to best provide it. What explains the strange trajectory of these debates and what does it tell us? For our first topics, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So after months of anticipation and preparation, we are finally in January 6th hearing season. The uh, House committee that is investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol uh, started its, uh, I think, seven hearing sequence last week on Thursday with an overview of what they plan to talk about. On Monday of this week, uh, they had uh, their first uh, subject-specific hearing uh, about what Donald Trump knew about the election uh, and trying to make the case that uh, he knew all along that he had lost the election. The hearing for Wednesday, or the day that this is coming out, sounds like it's been postponed, but we'll still have a hearing on Thursday to talk about the pressure put on Vice President Mike Pence. We'll have more hearings later on. I personally have been uh, pleasantly surprised at how good these hearings have been. As someone who is usually used to Congress doing nothing remotely impressive, these hearings have been, uh, I think, very impressive uh, so far. We will see, however, uh, if they have the sort of political impact that uh, I think their supporters are hoping that they will have. Quinta, you are the one who has been following this uh, the most closely. What is your view so far? Have you been, has this been above expectations, below expectations? What do you think? I've been incredibly impressed so far. Um, And look, I like making jokes about Congress as much as anybody else does. But I think the committee so far has, you know, for the the first two hearings at least, has really done an incredible job uh, making its case, putting together evidence in a way that is accessible, uh, that is interesting for people who, you know, haven't been following this quite so closely. Uh, They had the first hearing at the 8 p.m. primetime slot, and according to Nielsen, about 20 million people or nearly 20 million people watched with, according to the New York Times, on par with viewership of a game of, you know, Sunday night football. So that's pretty impressive for a congressional hearing. I think they've done a really nice job also, you know, staying on track, uh, sort of staying laser focused on unveiling their findings, telling people what happened and not getting down rabbit holes, not grandstanding, kind of allowing witnesses to speak for themselves. They've done a really nice job also selecting which witnesses to bring in, uh, both in terms of showing videotaped deposition testimony and live witnesses. Apart from uh, Officer Carolyn Edwards, who is an official with the U.S. Capitol Police, who was attacked on January 6th and sustained quite brutal injuries, most of the other witnesses have been Republicans, people who worked under Trump. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, I think, has really been in many ways the star witness 
against his former boss. And I think that that makes a very compelling case and being able to say, you know, it's not uh, 12 angry Democrats or however Trump used to refer to the Mueller investigators who are, you know, trashing him. It is his attorney general, his deputy attorney general, his own campaign manager, his daughter, his son-in-law. Um, and that I think really helps build the case. So, I don't know if this will change minds. I think, frankly, going into this with the expectation that, you know, we'd all have a road to Damascus moment, the Americans who have decided that January 6th was just peachy was, frankly, silly. Um, and I don't think the committee expects to do that. I do think that it could be very powerful in reminding people who, you know, have a lot on their plate, haven't been able to follow this closely, maybe it's receded a bit in the rearview mirror, reminding them what happened, reminding them how brutal it was, because I do think that that has receded with time to some extent for people outside D.C., and, you know, making the case for moral and political accountability. There's been a lot of speculation of, you know, oh, will the Justice Department sort of take the baton and investigate Trump personally? Will there be an indictment? Frankly, I think that's kind of missing the point. This is a congressional committee. It's not, you know, the second best option after a criminal investigation by the Justice Department. It's doing its own thing. And what it's doing is making a moral and political case to the public. So, you know, we we have uh, days of hearings left, I think, uh, because of the postponement on Wednesday. I think we have five hearings left. But so far, I've been incredibly impressed. No, I completely agree. I came in with, frankly, pretty muted expectations about what exactly we're going to get out of the hearing, um, simply because they're in a very difficult position and there are so many facts already out there. And they've done an exceptional job by fleshing out the narrative and doing it in the words of people whose credibility is very hard to deny. And I think you see kind of a learning process, perhaps, from other accountability efforts we've seen from the Trump era, right? We had first the Mueller effort, which was saying, well, let's see if we can give this big controversy to a nonpartisan and see if that nonpartisan's opinion will sway people. And that didn't really take out even for somebody as well regarded as Mueller was, uh, certainly at the beginning of that process. Then we have the Ukraine hearing saying, well, let's go for actual witnesses. Let's get facts. Let's get, you know, largely nonpartisan, some Republican, some Democrat, a lot of civil servants getting in saying, giving their testimony and their view about what's happening here in live testimony in the Congress. That didn't seize the public imagination either um, and certainly didn't seem to really budge people. But here you're hearing from insiders. You're hearing from Trump's own advisors, and that's really compelling. And there's a really interesting short uh, piece that I keep coming back to time and time and again, I think was from Zogby, I want to say. I may be misquoting it. I'll put – no, I think it was actually from Pew Research. It was actually from 2014 from the 40th anniversary of Watergate by an analyst who has since passed away, but kind of made a short point looking at the polling numbers about President Nixon's approval rating and how they lined up with the different developments in the Watergate investigation. And he basically made the point, which is that it was the release of the Nixon tapes and some of the open testimony in court that really swayed people. It was hearing from the insiders. And I have to think that that sort of is the strategy we see here um, that's very, I think, savvy and well-informed. And I think it tells us something about what their you know, audience is, a big question we were talking about last week. You know, I don't think it actually is DOJ for the reasons we talked about last week. DOJ, there are other ways to contact. And frankly, there's other sorts of information you, you, you want in terms of building a case. Although frankly, 90% of that may be the same. I think the audience really here, here really is actually the public. I actually think they're building a case to the public. 
and trying to do harm to the big lie by undermining the big lie in the most credible terms they can. That's a really ambitious swing, actually, um, because it means you're taking it on head on. But again, I've been really impressed by the extent to which they're doing it and the extent to which they've kind of held all of their cards close to the chest until now to lay them all out in one orchestrated fell swoop. That's also a big difference, I think, from the Ukraine investigation where everything was happening in real time. In this case, they really held in a lot of these interviews, a lot of these clips, a lot of these sayings, and are only now laying them out on the table. It makes it that much more impactful. I don't know if it's going to move the needle at all, but I'm coming uh, out of the first two days a little more optimistic that it will, or at least has the potential. If nothing else, it's getting a lot of fuel out there for Republican candidates who might not be inclined or might be running against Trump's favorite candidates that they can use to try and undermine credibility with a lot of voices that are seen as very credible in Republican circles. And that itself might prove a very fruitful endeavor down the road. Yeah, I agree with what both of you have said. I, I think I would just add a couple of things. One, I think... I have been very impressed, and I also recognize myself as someone who has been paying pretty close attention to all of this since January 6th. So I do wonder how much this is being seen as a success by people who have not been covering it so closely. So that includes a range of people, right? And that sort of goes to the point that Quinta was making, which is that the first hearing, which did focus so much on just the brutality and the seriousness of what happened on that day, I think was really, really important. And that's because there are still people out there who are not focused on it. And and there there are anecdotes that I've seen in various reporting of, you know, someone who was watching the hearing didn't even realize that people had been injured on January 6th, because in the year and a half that's passed since then, January 6th has become a talking point. And so people are aware of, you know, some people claim it was a normal tourist visit, and some people claim it was an insurrection and blah, 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 and who knows. And that they're just distant from the reality of the visuals that we saw that day. And so hearing testimony and being reminded of that, I think, was really just in the first instance, a way to open all of this by saying, no, really, this is so important. We cannot just let this be in the past. There has to be a a reckoning and it has to be a reckoning through this mechanism. There have been other types of mechanisms. There may still yet be other types of mechanisms for accountability, but this is one and it's powerful. And Congress and this committee is uniquely positioned to do this sort of accountability search. I, I do think that, you know, if people are coming to this hearing expecting that there's going to be a revelation in the form of someone has Trump on tape saying that I know this is all a lie and I'm doing it anyway. And I talked with the head of the Oath Keepers and the head of the Proud Boys and we plotted this together. You know, that's not going to happen. Um, and if that's what people were looking for, it's, you know, there, there's an expectations game issue. The other thing I'll say is in terms of the information coming out the way that it has um, and the way that the committee has been presenting its work, I think that this is just very good investigations practice. Um, so I have some experience doing investigations. And I think there are, there are a couple of things, and then I won't belabor the point. But first of all, investigations should be very carefully planned, and there should be a consolidated effort to tell a story once things have gone through a certain process and gotten to a certain point. And if you let information drip out, 
before there is a whole picture from the various threads that are being pursued, you really risk giving an inaccurate or incomplete picture of what the committee is finding. And and just the effort of pulling things together is both difficult and time-consuming and is also really, really important for establishing credibility of the work and creating a cohesive narrative of the story, which is, in my mind, part of the effort here um, that the committee is undergoing. And I was also just impressed, particularly in the second hearing, I think the committee did a lot of showing its work um, in terms of having members and um, staff involved in the video, seeing them taking the depositions, hearing them ask about specific documents that presumably the committee had either subpoenaed or, or gained access to in some other fashion. This is just a lot of work. And I think that the that is somewhat underappreciated. You know, people think, well, there's we have some of this information in fact because reporters have been finding things for the past year and a half, but establishing things through an investigation is a different process. And I think what they were able to show the first hearing to some degree, but especially the second, um, was that they have been going through things in a really methodical way. And I thought they put that on display very effectively. So it, it sounds like we're all converging on the same mutual admiration society view of the January 6th committee, which is totally fine. Um, but I do want to, and I guess I will be the sacrificial lamb here and accept all the Twitter Twitter hate for the next uh, week. Uh, I do want to raise some some potential objections, even if uh, only as a devil's advocate and and can get your responses to them. So I think in terms of the serious criticisms of the committee, there increasingly appear to be two types. One is the criticism you might say from the right that says, well, this was a tragedy. January 6th was really bad. Trump was really bad. But if you're going to have a committee like this, it has to be bipartisan. And no, having Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two Republicans on the committee, doesn't really count. Bipartisan has to mean you get the leadership, the Republican leadership in the House and Senate on board. Otherwise, this is just another one-sided, you know, third impeachment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, this is all somehow Nancy Pelosi's fault because she could have made this more bipartisan from the beginning, but she chose to make this more of a partisan political issue. So there's sort of those arguments from the right. And then there are arguments, I'm not sure I'd call them from the left per se, but a different set of arguments, uh, criticisms, maybe most famously made by uh, uh, David Brooks recently in The New York Times that says, look, you know, fine, this committee is doing whatever it does, um, but it's not responsive to the real problem that we face, right? The real problem that we face is not that it's Donald Trump and there's some specific conspiracy, but that America, because of structural problems and democratic deficits and polarization and et cetera, et cetera, is barreling towards civil war. And what we really need is a a committee that will figure out how to fix American democracy before it falls apart on the seams. Uh, so I, again, this is this is the tragedy of podcast being a uh, not a visual medium. You, you don't see Quinta's uh, just extreme eye rolling as I was uh, discussing this. Uh, she's part of Facial Contortion Club. Facial Contortion Club is back. We really need T-shirts, by the way, uh, Scott. If you could, if you could work on that, that'd be great. Um, Quinta, what do you what do you think about these uh, these two different sets of, of criticisms? Is there anything to them? So let me take them one by one. So first, on the you know this committee isn't bipartisan complaint. I do think that the fact that there are, in fact, two Republicans on the committee and that the lead Republican, Liz Cheney, has been 
a major voice in the hearing so far that she's sort of been one of the main people making the committee's case to the public actually speaks to how much the committee is trying to appear bipartisan. It has Democrats and Republicans. What it doesn't have are pro-insurrection Republicans. So if we count that as, you know, what bipartisanship means, then no, of course it's not bipartisan. But I do think it's also important to note that you know, Republicans rejected a independent bipartisan commission after Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy asked uh, Representative John Katko to hash that out, then threw Katko under the bus in one of my favorite sort of under-the-radar political dramas and trashed that bill and it went nowhere. And so they made the choice to have a committee, um, not an independent commission. I would frankly argue that the ability of the committee to kind of set aside any obligation to appeal to, you know, middle of the road, anti-anti-Trump folks or even pro-Trump folks is actually a strength. I think it allows it to make its case to the public much more honestly and aggressively, frankly, than it might have otherwise. And so, you know, maybe if the committee sort of came off as looking for gotcha moments, trying to be, uh, you know, explicitly partisan, um, then I might have concerns. But I think it is partisan only insofar as the Republican Party, by and large, has aligned itself against the truth. And so in that sense, I'm quite comfortable with it. To your second point, I think, you know, I really took issue with the Brooks column, in part because it was published the day before the hearings even began and described the committee's work as pathetic, which seems you know look like they're they're big boys and girls they can they can handle it but that seemed a bit of an overstatement the thing that i i really found odd is that what brooks is arguing is essentially that the committee was backward looking in his view that it's trying to untangle what happened on january 6th it's not looking forward to address those problems that is just not true. It is looking forward. And it's looking forward because of Scott and my's favorite thing to argue about, the Mazars litigation. Um, so under the Supreme Court's decision in Trump v. Mazars, the committee has been very, very methodically setting out a legitimate legislative purpose behind its investigation to be able to say, we're not just you know conducting this as fact-finding. We're not conducting this as sort of law enforcement by another means. We're not just telling a story. We are doing this to build a record to propose legislative and policy changes. There are a lot of different things on the table. They've suggested, for example, reform of the Electoral Count Act. They suggested possible changes to the criminal law to prevent sort of meddling in election administration in the Justice Department, uh, such as we now know that Trump did. We know from Axios reporting that there's debate among members of the committee between uh, Cheney and Representative Jamie Raskin about how big the committee should go. Uh, Raskin reportedly wants to really go big or go home and recommend getting rid of the Electoral College altogether. So the question of whether the committee should be thinking about these things rather than just conducting a backward looking investigation, I think, is actually a really complicated one. But it's just not true that they are not concerned about the bigger issues here. They very much are, and they're framing their work as such. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Quinta said. I'll just add, I think, two points to this. You know, I think it's notable and important here that the Republicans did have an opportunity to participate in this committee, right? Like they drew the red line in the party leadership even in participating in this body. Now, there was an effort to disqualify people who had taken certain positions. You can debate over that. But frankly, there was like debates did not go on very long. I think there probably was more space Republicans could have pushed and negotiated if they wanted good faith participation. And frankly, I think they're going to look back at this strategically and say, man, I think it was a mistake that we didn't actually try and get some of our at least slightly more friendly people uh, on the Republican side into this committee 
to disrupt the proceedings or present a different voice or just shift the narrative a little bit. Because instead, they left a lot of people who do take a very similar view of this sort of event. But a lot of that was Republicans' own making. Um, you know, there was not uh, an effort to disqualify everyone but Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. There were other Republicans that could have, I think, found their way onto this committee if Republicans had been willing to play ball, but they weren't. They kind of decided to stonewall it pretty early on. And that was their mistake, again, from my view. And I think that lends to the legitimacy of the committee, the fact that, that those proceedings, um, that there wasn't a genuine effort made to involve some Republicans, even if there were some limits on that, and I think fairly reasonable ones. The other point about this that I think is worth thinking about is is this the legislative purpose point Quinta makes is, is, is I think, a very true one. Also, like Congress looks at these things sort of retroactively for good reason. Like we had a 9-11 commission structured differently. They're kind of a different body, but nonetheless, using the same legislative authority. And we did that because when you have something really bad in the country go on, you need a strong factual record to be able to build on to build policy responses. Um, I don't think there, there's any kind of recent uh, action in the courts, whether Mazars or anything else, really undermines that core authority. Yeah, there needs to be some sort of tie to some sort of legislative responsibility. There are ties to countless legislative responsibilities on Congress's part, including counting electoral votes, to say the least, and securing the Capitol premises. So, um, you know, these sorts of complaints, I think, are, are quite misplaced. And, you know, really with Brooks and other people demeaning this work, Again, I think it's just premature to say that sort of thing before we actually see what's rolling out. I had my doubts going into it, and I still have doubts about how much this may move the ball. But in the end, you know, I think seeing their work actually does show that there's a value to this record and putting it forward in a way that may persuade people. And I don't think you can actually say, hey, we're trying to defend uh, democracy by saying all these bad things that happen, let's not talk about them. Let's just talk about kind of proactive things that you've got to have some understanding about what's happened in the past, to understand where you go moving forward and to even sort of build any sort of common message, common understanding. That's why you have truth and reconciliation committees, right? That's like a basic principle of transitional justice is the idea that you've got to establish some sort of factual, under, common factual understanding to build on, to move forward as a society. I think that applies here as well. And that's what the committee, I think, is trying to do in a way that breaks the kind of big lie media myth. And again, I'm, I'm cautiously more optimistic than I expected to be now that they may actually have some success in that front. So before we finish off this part of our discussion, I do want to spend just at least a minute or two talking about the actual stuff we have learned so far. Um, obviously, a lot of the work of the committee is to take things that you know has previously been publicly reported and stuff that you know nerds like us have been following really carefully for the last year and a half and package it in a narrative. Um, but there do seem to be some legitimately new things that are coming out. I, in particular, was struck by the amount of evidence that the committee has uh, obtained largely through interviews and testimony from uh, Trump administration officials and especially Trump campaign officials, showing that Trump was told not just by one or two people, but by literally everybody other than Rudy Giuliani, basically, uh, that you know, right after the election, he lost uh, and that no number of Italian bamboo ballots beamed in from Jewish space lasers or whatever was going to change, was going to change that. I mean, you know, Bill Barr told him, his campaign manager told him, Ivanka Trump admitted that she basically told him and thought that um, uh, he had lost the, the election. And, and I think this is important because it, you know, a defense for Trump, which has always been a little bit perverse, but is true because of his, let's call it unique psych psychology, is that pinning a, a intent, pinning a, a mens rea on him is hard because he is kind of characterologically incapable of interpreting the facts in ways that are, how shall we say it, 
not uh, not advantageous to his interests. But I think here it does strike me, and I'm curious what the rest of you think, that at this point, the evidence that he either knew that he had lost the election or if he didn't know, it was because he just decided he did not care about the truth. And that is not a defense, right? Either in the court of law or in the court of public political morality. And that this is something that, although I think a lot of us have suspected, has been, I'd say at this point, established beyond a reasonable doubt uh, as a result, in particular, of the testimony that we heard on Monday. Uh, and that, to me, has been quite striking and, and actually, I think, gives the lie to the uh, critiques of the committee's work as, well, they're not really doing anything and they're not really moving the needle uh, on anything. But I'm curious what, what you all think, if you think I'm being too uh, too optimistic. I agree with that. I think, you know, certainly the people who are entrenched with conspiracy theories are going to just think, oh, wow, the number of people who are in on the conspiracy against Trump are even more extensive than I thought. But for a lot of other people who may have just had doubts, yes, I think what's powerful about the testimony that they are displaying is not only the prominence of some of the people that they have gotten on on tape, but also the range. So there are White House lawyers, there's Bill Barr, there's the U.S. attorney in Georgia, there's campaign people. You know, it, it was not only the number of people who were explaining to Trump that he had lost, it was also that they were coming from a lot of different quarters. You know, I, I come back to my point that Mens rea is really not relevant to the committee's work because at the end of the day, I think it's a mistake to analyze everything that the committee is doing through the prism of how effectively it's going to map onto a criminal prosecution. But I think it is sort of along the lines of what you said, Alan, it's a it's more of a moral political judgment. But that said, I think it's, you know, the, the evidence and the scope and scale of the evidence is so strong it would meet a legal standard, criminal legal standard, I think, of willful blindness, which is a different type of criminal mens rea. So you don't have to prove actual knowledge because query whether Trump is is capable of seeing what you know the vast majority of people see as the unambiguous truth. But it doesn't actually matter for even for criminal purposes. And and my argument continues to be that. It doesn't matter what the standard is for criminal purposes, because that's not the committee's ambit here. You know what? I got nothing. I'm just going to embrace it. I don't have a segue here, guys. Uh, We're going to talk about Taiwan. So while the world has been focusing on the war in Ukraine, um, as we've mentioned a few times before, people in Taiwan are also getting nervous about what the Russian invasion of Ukraine might portend for a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, Speaking of former imperial powers with revanchist tendencies. So uh, there's some very interesting reporting in the New York Times about sort of Taiwanese efforts to build up their own uh, fighting force um, and some interesting quotes from people in Taiwan basically saying, you know, the lesson we've learned here from Ukraine is that if you can fight back and hold your own, the world will rally behind you and you can make sort of a moral case. And so they've been really building things up, trying to, you know, increase military readiness. And interestingly, the United States seems to be backing them 
on that, you know, maybe maybe not quite explicitly given uh, the whole strategic ambiguity of it all, but they're not not backing them. And uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also gave some remarks recently uh, sort of suggesting that the world should stand behind Taiwan as well. So I think there are a lot of different elements to this. I mean, one is the sort of the moral question of, you know, defending the smaller party against the bigger aggressor, potential aggressor. There's also, you know, the the sort of uh, real politique question of is the Biden administration here, you know, transforming what could have been a, you know, a European conflict into something that's potentially much broader and more global by making clear, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> that we will support Taiwan if push comes to shove. Um, so, Scott, I'm curious for your thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, this is a topic we've kind of touched on a few times about how much can you learn from Ukraine that's relevant to Taiwan. And I, I think it's worth being very, very skeptical of most efforts to draw direct ties between the two, because they're just really different scenarios. Geographically, obviously, you have an island versus a large populous country that you're trying to conquer versus an island like very close to mainland China. Um, you have the fact that one is a clearly recognized by the international community, independent country that's Ukraine. Taiwan, not actually widely recognized as an independent country, although lots of countries maintain relations with Taiwan. A lot of countries kind of follow a similar line to the United States where they don't, they see it kind of as a disputed part of China that needs to have some sort of political resolution. And so there's a lot of things to draw differences here. I, I do think there's something to the idea that making yourself a really painful, uh, which I, I think is often referred to as the porcupine strategy by Taiwan. I say making yourself a really painful thing to swallow is the best way for Taiwan to defend itself. And part of that has been hardening itself arming itself, preparing itself for an invasion to make it as painful on China as possible. But there have been a lot of doubts for the last, like, frankly, decade or two that Taiwan's doing as good a job about that as they can. It is, you know, there have been lower rates of conscription. They don't, or probably enlistment in the military. They got mandatory military service relatively short. There's been a lot of marks against their preparedness. The U.S. training mission really just restarted there in the last couple of years, if I recall correctly. Uh, in Taiwan, I think there were some other location of taking Taiwan pilot stuff outside. A lot of Taiwan has focused its you know big purchases and actually a lot of its political disputes in the, with the United States and China have been over efforts to proposal to restrict the types of military equipment that are being sold to Taiwan because Taiwan always wants high end large, you know, tanks, jet planes, things like that. But there's this ongoing debate by a lot of people saying out, but like, look, if you're being invaded by China, you're never going to be able to scale against China with those sorts of arms. The one thing you can do is throw a bunch of stinger missiles and small arms all around your country, teach your people how to use them and get ready for an invasion. Like that's how you harden yourself. That's how you become the porcupine, not with three big spines, but with a whole back full of them. And there's only seems to like really be recently coming around to the political will to actually do that. And I wonder why that is, you know, and I, I have to think it comes down to two factors. Like since 2014, Ukraine has known that invasion was a very real and imminent possibility. I think a lot of the rest of the international community had doubts about that, uh, including me, <laughs> including other people, uh, had doubts whether Putin would actually go through with it to the full extent of Martin Kiev. But it did not seem like Ukrainians actually did, um, even as they tried to talk down some of the United States warning about this. They very clearly were preparing. And the Biden administration, to its credit, was very seriously preparing for this most recent invasion. And that head start means they had time to really train people and go on a war footing. And to some extent, they have been on a war footing since 2014, um, whereas Taiwan really hasn't. And I think part of that is because Taiwan perhaps has leaned really heavily on the U.S. security umbrella. The United States used to have a treaty commitment to intervene on Taiwan's behalf that was taken away uh, in the late 1970s, and there used to be statutory authorization to allow the president to do that. That was taken away as well. 
So there, that's how we ended up with this kind of strategic ambiguity about what the United States will do. But there's always been like a strong presumption the United States would act in Taiwan's benefit, and that's really what's deterring China. And I have to wonder whether maybe Taiwan hasn't taken this opportunity to make itself as painful a porcupine as it could be because it didn't, it thought it had other deterrent mechanisms available to it. And it does still seem like it does, but you know, that's not an ideal situation to be relying on that specifically, especially because the United States ability to intervene militarily and act quickly to prevent a Russian invasion. I think there's good reasons to doubt that, not just because they could, even if they, even they want to, it's just such a small you know, landmass. We don't have a lot of U.S. troops like in the vicinity. You know, there's a lot of reasons to think that that might be a real problem. And I think most military simulations we've seen have, have pointed that this would actually be a really difficult thing for the United States to undertake, although they can make it very painful on China. So, you know, long story short, I, I think the the real kind of takeaway here is that Taiwan, the lesson from Taiwan might be like emulate the Ukrainians and making yourself very difficult target to conquer. But I'm not sure that's a mission that they've actually like are beginning to undertake seriously. Maybe maybe the lesson to take away from the current situation is that they should be um, because the perceived deterrence that's been effective for the last several decades may not last forever. I think those are very helpful analysis. And, and I, I certainly agree with you that we should not overapply the lessons such as they are of the war in Ukraine. And of course, it's not even clear what the lessons are yet because the war is very much still ongoing. We have no idea how it's going to end yet. So we should not apply lessons that we don't even know to Taiwan. I, I do think though that there is room for maybe a more optimistic framing than the one that you, Scott, offered. And I think that's for a, a couple of reasons. Um, first is the fact that I, I think it's hard to know how a people react to an invasion until in fact they are invaded. You know, I think there's a growing media narrative, um, and I'm extrapolating here just from the stuff that I've been reading, that somehow the Taiwanese, they're kind of, their heart's not in it somehow. Uh, they don't really want to serve in the military. They're taking this very lackadaisical posture. Um, and that therefore, the argument goes, uh, if China invades, then we should expect Taiwan resistance to kind of collapse quickly. That's possible, right? That's, of course, totally possible. Um, but I think that that's what a lot of smart Ukraine watchers would have said about Ukraine as well. And it turns out that the world just looks very, very different uh, when your homeland, when your country, right? And of course, whether Taiwan is a country is sort of one of the questions in international law, but it is effectively, obviously, a country when that is invaded, right? So I, th I think there's a version of uh, of this where, where China invades Taiwan and they suddenly discover that they have, you know, in one moment taking a bunch of people who may have just not been uh, forced psychologically to take this that seriously, uh, and they've turned them into uh, passionate, passionate sort of Taiwanese partisans. That, that's kind of the first thought. The second thought is, I, I do have to wonder what the real failure, what the real weaknesses of the Russian military, what effect that must be having on whether it's Xi Jinping's strategic calculations or those of the Chinese, uh, Chinese military heads. One thing that's notable about Russia is that this is sort of the, the third, I'd say, kind of European territorial land war that's engaged in the last decade, right? You had Georgia, then you had Ukraine the first time, and I had Ukraine the second time. And it was Russia's relative success in both of those first two engagements that I think gave Putin um, the confidence uh, this time around. Now, you look at China, China's military is in some ways in a stronger position than Russia's is. Uh, it may be better run. Uh, but it is actually less tested. I don't believe China has been in a major territorial war uh, with another country since Vietnam. 
you know, obviously they've been uh, suppressing Tibet. They've been you know, doing those things that they do in, uh, in Xinjiang. But the Chinese military, although very high tech and very big, is completely untested. And uh, so I do wonder if the Russian military's failures is maybe undermining some of China's confidence in just how well it's very big, but very untested and very fragile, um, therefore army will will do. So again, I, I think the answer is ultimately what uh, Scott said at the beginning, which is we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Um, and this could go in all sorts of different directions. But I, I mean, I, I may be a little more uh, optimistic rather than Scott is about what uh, the war in Ukraine means for Taiwanese, continued Taiwanese independence. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So I'll just say, not to take us in a completely different direction, but somewhat to take us in a completely different direction. I think that there's so much more going on here than making an analogy to Ukraine. I don't think that these um, pretty strong words from the Chinese Minister of Defense at the um, convening at Singapore was motivated by calculations about how political rhetoric may have changed due to the war in Ukraine. I think it was in response to a much longer arc of develop U.S. development of strategy toward China, including its movements in the region. So the U.S. has been really stepping up its efforts to um, form security arrangements with other countries in the region um, in an effort to counter China. You know, they ride a, a balance between, you know, not trying to make it clear that they are, they being the, the U.S. government, are not trying to create a military alliance that is against China, but that it is trying to create alliances and coordination, I think, are some of the buzzwords that they use. But there have there has been a lot of activity, um, even over the last couple of months. And I think it makes more sense to contextualize what's going on with Taiwan um, in, in the Straits in that narrative, in, in that those developments, political and international relations developments. So, you know, in April, there was um, an incident where the U.S. sent a warship through the Taiwan Straits and the um, Chinese government responded with a lot of anger and said it was provocative. 
Um, it's something that is not unprecedented, and it's the U.S. position that the Straits are international waters, so that it should have there should be no legal basis for it's not being allowed to do that. But it's it's it was also something that the U.S. said it was doing to sort of send a message that it did not view China's claims to uh, sovereignty over the Straits as legitimate. And I think, you know, I'm not an expert in this region, so I won't list off all of the other things that have been going on. But I, I just do think it makes more sense to analyze this situation in that context and, and sure, give some thought to how it may be playing, how the how the war in Ukraine may be playing into the dialogue and the decision making on all sides. But I think that probably has less impact than we might think, because it, it makes for an interesting sort of high-level analysis that's a little bit removed from the regional developments. The other just quick thing um, I read, Alan, that speaks to one of your points that I thought was interesting is um, about a poll, and I apologize, I don't remember what the source of this poll was, but it was a poll of Taiwanese people and their view of this whole situation. And it found that 60% of Taiwanese did not believe that China would invade But then 50% of those polled did not think that Taiwan would be able to defend itself against China if it did invade. And 55% of them did not think the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if China invaded. So I thought that was just an interesting um, view of what the mindset is in Taiwan. And, you know, I also heard some analysis from uh, Taiwanese commentators that, they really think that these comments were more for a domestic audience in China. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I will turn over the floor. So I think that that point you raised about the Taiwan Straits is a really good one, Natalie, and something actually worth thinking about here, because you're absolutely right. There's a lot more context here than Ukraine. And we've seen the Biden administration take kind of like an interesting posture here, whether deliberately or, or not deliberately, as we've discussed before on the podcast about President Biden casting a little bit of doubt or or perhaps less doubt in the strategic ambiguity formula, strongly suggesting that he would be inclined to come to Taiwan's aid if there were some sort of conflict, ratcheting up pressure, freedom of navigation operations, which is what the U.S. Navy calls uh, when they send armed uh, you know warships through what they view as international waters, but that may be disputed or whose status may be contested by other parties. Taiwan Strait's a prime example of that, is, a, is another sort of these, of these moves that's seen as both reinforcing international norms as the United States sees them, but are often seen as provocative by the other side of them, which is often China, uh, particularly when you're talking about South China Sea and the area around Taiwan. And so it, it's this interesting U.S. pressure. And I and you have to think to yourself, like, how much of this is deliberate and how much of it is strategic and how much of it is kind of a, a response to whether it's like President Biden's own ambiguity about strategic ambiguity, how he feels about it, or whether it's this people kind of managing a situation. I think there's a temptation sometimes to read too much strategy into how much the United States and other countries approach things. There's often a lot of kind of improvisation along the way. Um, but the one thing I'll say is like, there's an interesting question if it is strategic to say, well, why is the Biden administration maybe ratcheting up pressure on China now? One possibility is that they are using Taiwan as a way to put pressure on China on other fronts um, that they see it as unlikely to actually budge. Another audience, though, is here is maybe Taiwan itself. Maybe they're kind of really trying to break the point saying, hey, look, I mean, China's 
is provocative about this. And when we start talking about actually coming to your support, taking other steps like China responds pretty aggressively, maybe you should take them seriously, Taiwan, and start adapting your tactics and start seriously thinking about preparing yourself for the potential of a conflict coming forward. Um, in that sense, there, there may be some perceived strategic benefit of heightening tensions. I will say, generally speaking, it doesn't strike me as it's actually in the benefit of Taiwan to heighten these sorts of tensions. And so when Volodymyr Zelensky or other people make these public proclamations, I think that probably hurts Taiwan. I think Taiwan's benefited by having more time to prepare and uh, being persuaded, perhaps quietly, by allies to prepare in the proper way. Um, having a long lead time was a big factor in Ukraine's advantage for this latest conflict going all the way back to 2014 and then the months before this most recent offensive. And the same would be true of Taiwan, too. So, you know, to bring things to a heat strikes me as I'm dubious that that's actually a good strategic choice, although maybe one that the Biden administration or others are making, you know, I think it probably is in Taiwan's benefit to keep things relatively quiet and stable and give Taiwan more time to prepare. But maybe feel people feel like you need to turn the pressure up a little bit to motivate them to take that step. That's a possibility. But again, that may just be two three-dimensional chess. People sometimes read those things into these sorts of actions. And in my experience, often that's just more complex than actual policymaking executes. It's a lot more fudging and making things up along the way. Um, well, going to a dire security situation overseas to a dire security situation at home, at least for one member of our Washington elite institutions, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh encountered quite a dicey situation outside his home. Or actually, it doesn't, he doesn't appear to have encountered it, but he almost did last week when a mentally ill young man who had traveled to Washington, D.C. with plans to uh, break into Kavanaugh's home, kill him, and then kill himself, uh, as I understand the plans were re are related in police documents, had a moment of pause outside the justice's home when he saw the U.S. Marshals posted there, texted or communicated with his sister, who advised him to call 911 and not proceed with the plans, which he then thankfully did, which led police to then encounter him, arrest him, take the materials away, which he had were still in the trunk of his car, um, and stop this very dangerous situation from taking place, which I think we can all agree is a good thing uh, that this that this did not proceed. It's also triggered and renewed a debate that had stalled briefly in Congress, where after the release uh, or the leak, I should say, of the Dobbs opinion, a bill was introduced in the Senate providing more security for Supreme Court justices uh, and their family members. That bill had kind of paused or lost some momentum for a while. This effort appears to have reinvigorated it. But that bill has now become the subject of some weird partisan wrangling. In the Senate side, we've seen primarily Senate Republicans really pushing for their version of the bill, although it is bipartisan and written with uh, Democrats and approved, I think, almost unanimously, if not unanimously, by the Senate, um, which would focus on Supreme Court justices and their families themselves, giving the option to provide security for them where deemed warranted by Supreme Court security officials. With a House version of the bill, it came out a, a little while later after some accusations of stalling, where the House say, well, we don't want to just give it to Supreme Court justices. We also want to give it to Supreme Court clerks and a, sort of a, a number of other people associated with the Supreme Court. Um, this led to a number of days of back and forth. Eventually, we saw a minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, come forward and say, look, the House bill just is not going to pass the Senate. It does not have the votes and we're not going to move it forward. That's why this is just stalling on the Democrats' part and accusing them of you know, essentially catering to the ra radical left on this particular point. Um, just a few hours before recording, the House appears to have uh, caved on that position. They're now going to vote on the Senate version of the bill uh, instead of trying to move forward on the House version uh, that provides that broader security measure. 
But it's just an odd exchange to have over the course of the week to see a proposal go from unanimous, uh, by, very bipartisan, um, to then become this a, a broader version, uh, a kind of more severe version of that proposal, then become the subject of such partisan acrimony and accusations. And in some ways, it's I think some have interpreted it as a pretty dire sign about the state of discourse around just about anything touching on the Supreme Court these days. Alan, I know you've been looking at this case uh, and thinking about it a bit. Tell us a little bit about what you think this tells us about the discourse around the Supreme Court and what it might mean for other debates, not just this security debate that now appears to be at least on track towards some sort of resolution. Yeah. I mean, obviously the most important thing was that this plot was foiled. It's a pretty serious one. Uh, I mean, obviously uh, public figures are subject to all sorts of plots and threats and attempts of of one thing or another. Um, I think this is about as serious as an attempt gets uh, without shots being fired, as it were. And I I think that it's the story has still been, in my mind, oddly undercovered. You know, obviously the Times and Post covered it, but this was not like a big above the fold thing. Um, It really hasn't broken, I think, much into the public conversation. And, you know, there are inevitably, of course, there's now a story about why the story isn't a bigger story. And there are a lot of folks on the right who think that this is an example of double standards in, in the you know, left-leaning media. Maybe there's some of that. I, I don't really know. But to me, though, what's more surprising is that people, I think, aren't appreciating just how earth-shattering this would have been had someone managed to kill a sitting Supreme Court justice, especially a Republican-appointed Supreme Court justice. I mean, for a variety of reasons, part having to do with the increasing importance of the Supreme Court, uh, part having to do with the fact that this was a conservative justice being targeted uh, during a Democratic presidency with still a Democratic-controlled Senate. You know, a, a assassination of a Supreme Court justice would be the most kind of Im- impactful and destructive political assassination, I think, other than literally the president of the United States. You know, it's kind of ghoulish to rank um, political assassinations, but um, they have democratic consequences. And again, you know, because there are a lot more senators and there are a lot more representatives and and the vice president, although obviously an important role can be replaced in certain ways, you know, other than assassinating the president, um, assassinating a Supreme Court justice, uh, especially of the other party from the sitting White House, um, is something that I think would have injected a level of constitutional, honestly, quite possibly constitutional crisis and reciprocal violence that we have not yet seen. And I am including the, you know, this is even given the fact that we spent the first third of this conversation talking about January 6th. So I I think this should be a wake-up call, you know, if people aren't realizing this yet, that we are on the knife's edge of real political violence in this country. And I don't know what would happen if a, you know, Republican justice was assassinated and then the Democrats had this insane dilemma to deal with about who to replace it. I don't know how they decide. I don't know what would happen if the roles were reversed. And I don't think we can predict that this would not go quite a bit out of control. And I, I think that this has been, therefore, in my mind, bizarrely undercovered as uh, as an issue. That's putting aside the question of what to do about it and you know, with the, the law and this like ridiculous fighting between the Democrats and the Republicans, which seems to them just be projecting the fact that they can't, it's like, it's in bad taste to fight over the Supreme Court right now. So they'll fight over this law protecting the Supreme Court. Um, but I just want to focus on the fact that they, this would have been a very, very, very big deal, much bigger than people realize uh, had this uh, been successful. 
Yeah, I agree that the critique that this should be more covered in the media is a legitimate one. I I think that resorting only to explanations that it is political is a little too simple and a little too quick to characterize everything as partisan, which, you know, sure, there is that argument. Everything is partisan. We are in an unprecedentedly partisan environment, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also the reality that, frankly, this was a very strange situation. This person got out of a cab, saw the marshals posted outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home, walked down the block, called 911 after texting with his sister, made a phone call and said, I'll call you back because I need to look at the street signs to figure out where I am. And, and called back and said that he wanted to cooperate with the police when they came and he wasn't going to do anything. Um, I will take a pause to just say that the I haven't listened to the recording of the 911 dispatcher conversation um, with this man, but based on reading about it, it seems like this person was incredibly impressive and professional and, you know, to the extent this person was on the verge of or in the middle of a severe uh, mental crisis, really managed to diffuse the crisis. So I think that person deserves some credit. But, I, you know, I think had there been, had, had the marshals been responsible for stopping this person, had there been an actual invasion, had he started yelling at one o'clock in the morning while um, everyone in the na- neighborhood was sleeping, it would have been a bigger story just because it seems like a more serious threat. And I agree with you, Alan, it is a threat. And he came and he had planned and he had materials and this should be being covered Uh, more robustly in the press. But I do think just the nature of the situation is partially the reason for that. Alan, I think you're right that this is, you know, a reminder of the presence of political violence in the United States right now. And I mean, I I think we talked about this in the show. I I wrote a a piece for The Atlantic a, a month or so ago about the increase in sort of violent threats as a common feature of political life. And I don't want to, you know, do the the both sides, but it is true that, you know, we have mostly seen this on the right. It is not exclusively on the right. I do think that one thing that happens when violent political rhetoric or extreme political rhetoric gets thrown around is that people who are not well and not getting the care that they need can become amenable to it. I think we saw this happen with Cesar Sayoc, who is the man, I believe, from Florida, who sent pipe bombs to a number of Democrats. And this is concerning for exactly that reason. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of argument about, you know, is the United States headed for a second civil war, right? And I think that, you know, instances like this and the pipe bomb sent by Sayoc and the threats uh, that we heard about during the January 6th committee hearings uh, directed toward uh, election officials who are just trying to do their job by Trump supporters are all reminders that you don't need uh, you know, a literal shooting civil war or militia action or something like that to have violence really degrade the the body politic. I, I also I know that Scott wants to uh, dig us into the the history a little bit here. So I'll just say that uh, to cue you up, Scott, this is not the first time that there has been an assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice. That's correct. The uh, <laughs> uh, just as the only part time law professor, uh, I will I do have to say. I'll queue up to say that this is is not as even the most severe, serious attack on a Supreme Court justice we've had. You know, there was a case called In Ray Neagle from the late 19th century, where basically you had a Supreme Court justice actually 
be physically assaulted. I can't remember if he pulled a gun on him or not by somebody he had ruled against. I actually think it was another judge he had replaced earlier in his career. So they had a long personal beef. And that person was then shot dead by a U.S. Marshal. And is this kind of foundational Supreme Court case in Ray Neagle um, that kind of establishes the inherent authority of federal agencies to take certain types of actions. In that case, for the attorney general to appoint marshals to then defend Supreme Court justices, including with lethal authority uh, where necessary and warranted. And so it's a kind of interesting little history there. That said, uh, the uh, thing that I wanted to flag here is that I, I want to cast a little bit of cold water on the idea that this would have been like an apocalyptic sort of outcome if this had succeeded. I think it would have been really bad. Um, and people would have seen every reaction that's very good that it didn't happen. But I think it's a little... I think it plays into a little bit of certain narratives too much about the Civil War narrative to say that this like would necessarily have led to like massive violence in the United States one side or the other. I'm just not persuaded it's there because we have a lot of political violence targeting other people of a very significant level in our country, maybe not at this level. The one thing I will say, the reason why I, I think you draw that inference, and I think that that was why you're, you're drawing that inference a little bit, Alan, in particular in relation to this case is because it's the Supreme Court, right? It is this figure where the death of somebody who would be killed in an attack here would then transition the control of this institution to, in this case, a member of the opposite political party who would then be able to appoint a justice who would sit on that and potentially change the balance for X number of decades. And I'll just go back to say, I think the foundation, the basic fundamental point here is actually, that's actually an issue with the Supreme Court, not necessarily just political dialogue, right? Like, the reason why you might expect or why you might see a really disproportionate response from people put such an emphasis on the Supreme Court is because a vacancy there has these sort of broad consequences because it's like the one federal office of the federal judiciary is the one set of federal offices that have lifetime appointments. And I think this is actually kind of a structural problem. The same way you saw the death of a Supreme Court justice, such as RBG, um, last term lead to a lot of, I think, political outrage for a lot of people was because that death was way more consequential than the death, frankly, of even a president or even other major official, because that president or other official would have been reelected at any point in a number of years. You're going to have an opportunity for people to have their political voice heard in a few years. That's not the case with Supreme Court justices. They last for decades and decades. And maybe that's part of the reason why um, we should have institutional change the Supreme Court. We've seen proposals of people saying, and I think very reasonable proposals, to say that we need to have, or should at least seriously consider having term limits in place um, that'll provide for a more orderly transition of these sorts of officials on a more fixed time frame that I think would cause the control of the institution to hinge less severely upon the unpredictabilities of, frankly, human mortality uh, and accidents and malicious acts like this that might have gone forward. And that's right. There's a much more sensible way to design one of the United States leading institutions. Um, so if anything, I think cases like this should lead us to think not just about security in terms of the physical security of the members of the court, but really how we think about the institution is structured and how we preserve the security of the institution, its ability to survive shocks in its structure or to its members, because this isn't the only way that happens. And they do continuously become these big points of contention among the different parties, precisely because there are such high stakes on them. And I know that wasn't what you were saying, Quinta. I, th I thought that's what Alan said when he in his introductory remark. Sorry. Yeah. So, so uh, look, I, I'm not trying to be alarmist here. I don't think we're about to have a second civil war. I said last week that was my uh, kind of object lesson that I don't think we're going to have a second civil war. Uh, just your your weekly reminder to read a civil war book because uh, they're good. My 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 point is is rather 
that I think this would have been more disruptive than I think the press coverage reflects. And and I, I want to in particular respond to sort of a point that Quinta made and a point that uh, that Natalie made. So with respect to a point, Quinta, I think you made, which is that, you know, to the extent that there is political violence in this country, there's more of it, or we should expect more of it, or we might be reasonably more afraid of it coming from the right rather than the left. I think on the one hand, that's true in the sense of if you look at the institutionalized militia groups out there, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, I think there's no question. But if what you're look, thinking about is political assassinations, there I'm less convinced because it only takes it only takes one person uh, to do this, right? And you're, you're right. There's actually there were leftists who were out there chanting to hang Mike Pence on January sixth. That's not what I meant, but I if you'd like if you'd like to let me continue, I'll, I'll happily give you an example, right? So I think you know it's notable, for example, that in well, 2017, someone came and and you know shot up a, a congressional baseball practice, right? This majority. Uh, whip Steve Scalise was pretty seriously injured. That was perpetrated by um, you know someone with left wing political views who was very anti Republican and anti Trump. Again, I don't think that tells you anything about the Democratic Party or the left in this country. Um, I'm just trying to say is that these sorts of individualized acts of violence can come from anywhere across the political spectrum. This is a very big country. It is increasingly polarized. And although if the question is where should we expect the the kind of militia activity to come from, yes. I think that's totally more probable from the right. Where should we expect individual acts of spectacular political violence to come from? I, I'm not sure we can say that that's more or less likely on the left or the right. I think you could easily find it in both places. And that gets me to sort of a, a, a comment on something Natalie said. So Natalie, you I think you emphasized that this is kind of an odd case. This is an individual who clearly had some mental illness problems and called his sister. And it's an odd case there. And that's certainly worth considering. At the same time, in American political history, we've had plenty of these sorts of unstable lone wolf type figures. And their ideological commitment is not required to have very serious repercussions. I mean, I think a good example of this is the assassination of Martin Luther uh, King Jr., um, which was perpetrated by an individual. And although there were various conspiracy theories of who that person was in league with, it seems like that was just a disgruntled racist. That led to some of the most brutal social disturbance and riots that we've had since the Civil War. So all I'm trying to say is that in a highly polarized country where there are just because you have a big country, enough unstable, violent people out there, this is all, I think, a lot more fragile than I, I think the three of you, and it seems like most of the media seems to think it is. I just want to clarify one thing for the record, which is that I was explaining that the situation was an odd one, and that may feed into the explanation for why it is not being more covered by the press. I do not think that it is a less, the fact of this person being um, mentally unstable and the way that the situation played out means that it is less something that we should be afraid of. You know, I'll, I'll just say, I do think this debate feeds back into the congressional debate we had over these House and Senate versions of this bill, because the real point of contention ultimately seemed to be whether the Congress could move forward with the Senate version, which only really allowed the Supreme Court security officials to provide security to Supreme Court justices, Supreme Court clerks, and Supreme Court justices' families. That's kind of the expansion to the broader House version, which said, we want to be able to protect law clerks, families, and other administrators, other peoples at the court. And it strikes me is that if we are accepting that there these are risks that can come from different directions, they're unpredictable. 
I don't understand the argument for resisting extending that discretionary authority. Again, this is an obligation. This is an expenditure of funds. It's giving the discretionary authority to the Supreme Court security folks to say, yeah, actually, if the husband or wife of a Supreme Court law clerk is under threat, that could be an issue. And so the strong opposition to that from Senate Republicans, I was pretty struck by. Uh, and some of the rhetoric around it basically saying, well, these are no-name people. That's not who we're worried about. We're worried about Supreme Court justices. That's what Mitch McConnell said. The only thing I can think about this is that in the last few weeks, Supreme Court justices, Supreme Court law clerks, excuse me, have become no longer no-name people, right? After the Dobbs leak, we saw uh, at least one, and in my memory, a few Supreme Court clerks get specifically identified in by folks on Twitter, or by certain folks in the media as suspects in that leak. And my honest worry is that, yeah, that could subject them to the exact same sorts of threats. And while the clerks themselves are covered under the current policy, their family members aren't. So if you're worried about people targeting Supreme Court justices, family members, I'm not sure why you wouldn't allow the same officials the authority to protect Supreme Court clerks, family members. Uh, certainly as a former as a former law clerk or a former federal employee, I would feel a lot better if I knew that um, if the situation warranted to it, people could defend my wife as much as they could defend me. But, you know, that's just kind of the moment we live in. Uh, and perhaps it's going to take another almost disastrous situation like we saw with Justice Kavanaugh to convince people that the security of all sorts of folks with nexuses to the clerks warrants serious consideration. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think on until we are back in your ears with our next episode. Alan Rosenstein, why don't you get us started? I feel a little bad because I feel like object lessons should be things that people don't already obviously know about, but I just cannot help it. I saw Top Gun Maverick over the weekend and my God. I have not watched a movie that thrilled me and made me happy and reaffirmed my faith in, in Hollywood and made me want to watch the movie immediately again once I left the movie theater, as with Top Gun Maverick. I am a huge original Top Gun fan. It, it is objectively not a great movie on rewatching. Uh, it has not aged quite as well. Top Gun 2 is just better in every conceivable way. And this, the stunts are indescribably good. So I highly recommend watching Top Gun 2 Maverick unless you've already seen it since it's been out in theaters for a while. It just took me a while to get there. And then immediately come home and spend the next two hours, which is what I did, on YouTube looking at every behind-the-scenes making-of clip because it is flabbergasting. Tom Cruise is a lunatic, and we are very lucky to have him. So, Alan, is the fact that you're late and giving me all of this work that I assigned you due to the fact that you spent two hours on YouTube after going out to see a movie? Is that what I'm to understand? 100%. And I do it again. Quinta, what have you got for us this week? I also have something old, even older than a movie that came out a few months ago. And it is a political scandal. It is Bridgegate. Um, so listeners may have picked up at this point that I am from New Jersey and proudly so. Um, and so I would just like to take this moment to remind everyone of a delightful political scandal that occurred in 2013. And I am reminding you of it because one of the witnesses whose uh, testimony was shown this week at the January 6th hearings, Bill Stepien, Trump's former campaign manager, was a major figure in said scandal. So before he was Trump's campaign manager, 
Stepien was an aide to Republican Governor Chris Christie and was centrally involved per uh, new, uh, extensive emails that were released to the public in the Bridgegate scandal, which involved uh, Christie aides' efforts to close the George Washington Bridge or close many lanes on the George Washington Bridge in September 2013 as retaliation for the mayor of Fort Lee, which is the town on the other side of the bridge from New York, uh, refusing to endorse Christie for governor. Um, so this was memorialized in a wonderful email that says, uh, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. There were multiple indictments. A case about uh, the corruption charges went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, Bill Stepien, however, was never charged. And he emerged years later to fight another day on the Trump campaign. Um, strangely, tragically, Bridgegate did not come up during the January 6th hearing. I, for one, simply cannot imagine why. But it is just a truly wild and weird and very like New Jersey, New York bridge and tunnel scandal. If you are not familiar, I recommend that you take a look at it. It will give you some joy in your day. And it is definitely one of my top New Jersey political scandals in a state that has many. One of our Patreon bonuses, by the way, Quinta, should be you and I locked in a room debating which is better slash worse, your uh, home state of New Jersey or my home region of Long Island. I think you could make uh, mm. good, good arguments on both sides. Let's do it. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am uh, celebrating a fact people may not know about me. People know I have a lot of habits, uh, hobbies. People know I have a lot of things I do outside of work. But here's something people may not know is that I am a very spicy boy. I like spicy <laughs> foods. Oh, uh, I recently counted before this segment because uh, I was curious. I realized I have 27 open bottles of hot sauce in my refrigerator right now because I have a tendency of putting them on everything. But I took a pretty dramatic step that I'm pretty excited about. I'm going to ask for listeners' help with uh, this week is that I made my own hot sauce over the last few weeks. I've been fermenting my own mashed Fresno chilies, uh, blended them with some garlic olive oil yesterday, and do what is a pretty good hot sauce. I'll drop the recipe into the Twitter thread um, if you want to try it with a few modifications that I, I ended up implementing. It's not bad, but I am in the process of growing my own pepper collection in my backyard as we speak freshly planted. I have six different types growing, habanero, pasilla, jalapeno, serrano, and a different type of ambiguous red chili that was just advertised as red chili that I'm very excited to see what that one turns out to be. Uh, and I have another one and another one in there. I can't remember what that one is either. I'm very excited about it. So I'm going to be making a lot of hot sauce later this summer because if you've ever grown chili plants, you will know they are very, very, very productive in July and August. And so I want to know, our listeners, we have a good culinary crowd of, among our listeners. Who have you have made your own hot sauces? And do you have any recipes to recommend to me um, with any particular pepper combo? I am open to all sorts of things, although I tend to lean towards like the garlic and the medium heat because I like to lay it on thick when I can because, again, I'm a very spicy boy. Um, with that, uh, I look forward to your responses, listeners. Do not let me down. I am counting on you, as is my future lack of taste buds. Isn't there a sriracha shortage? Are you preparing for the absence of sriracha? I have moved so far past sriracha, I can't even begin. Sriracha is just sugar water to me now. It is just like, it's not bad. Oh, I still like sriracha. It's not bad, particularly on carrots. It's a very nice, like, healthy snack to put sriracha on carrots. Also, Quint, I love how you emphasize sriracha. You know, it's exciting a word to say. <laughs> how often do you get to run those gauntlets together like that? It's great. <laughs> Natalie, why don't you bring us home? Okay, my object lesson is is quite topical in a relatively boring sort of way, but um, I just finished listening to a podcast, which is Dudum, on the topic of January 6th. It is a podcast called Will Be Wild, not W-E apostrophe L-L, but 
W-I-L-L, as in what Trump said about January 6th in advance of its happening. And it is a really interesting discussion of various threads leading up to January 6th. So how did how did this happen? They tell the story through some very good interviews with um, the son of Guy Reffitt, who is one of the insurrectionists who was charged and convicted. His son um, was the one to turn him into the FBI and actually flagged that he could be a threat in advance, um, I believe on Christmas Eve or something. They also talk about the um, dismantling of DHS during the Trump administration, which may have had some role in the fact that DHS did not send around any warnings um, or compile any intelligence reports that were reported out to warn of the threat of violence on January 6th. Um, And they go into a couple of other really interesting themes, just looking at what led to January 6th. Um, So I would recommend it. I will also, in a moment of shameless self-promotion, recommend to everyone episode two of The Aftermath in preparation for um, our next January 6th committee hearing, which, as we said, is going to focus on the effort by Trump to um, replace the leadership team at the Department of Justice after the election to um, find leadership that would support his claim that the election had been stolen. So we get into that quite a bit, um, including in interviews with um, New York Times reporter Katie Benner, who covered this story of great intrigue at the time. And if I do say so myself, I think it is a helpful explanation of what happened there and maybe a nice companion piece to um, everyone's viewing of the next January 6th committee hearing. Well, on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our special series on the January 6th investigation entitled The Aftermath, hosted by our own special guest, Natalie Orpet, a.k.a. Natalie Norpet. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinta and Allen, and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.